0: uh, we are in fellowship with the Lord. Scripture teaches that if we commit a sin, then we grieve and quench the Holy Spirit. As believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are indwelt by God the Holy Spirit from the instant of salvation. We are also filled with the Holy Spirit, but as soon as we sin, we lose the filling of the Holy Spirit. Scripture uses other terminology to define that. We quit walking by the Spirit. We're not abiding in Christ. We're walking according to the sin nature. In order to recover fellowship, we have to confess sin. We do that by simply admitting in the privacy of our own soul to God the Father what we have done, the sins that we have committed. First John one nine says if we admit or acknowledge our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That instant we recover fellowship, we are restored, we recover the filling of the Holy Spirit, and we can resume our spiritual advance so uh, since God the Holy Spirit is the one who helps us to understand his word we always make sure we're in fellowship at the beginning of each service so we have a few moments of silent prayer and then I will open in prayer let's pray Father, again, we thank you that we have the privilege to gather together to study your word. Your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. We are reminded that Scripture says that the grass withers and flower fades, but the word of God abides forever. And so, Father, we worship you this morning because we understand that your word is absolute truth, that you have revealed yourself to us, and not only yourself, but you have told us, given us information about the real issues in life, how to live, how to think. We pray that as we study your word, you would challenge us with these things and that we might be responsive to them. That under the teaching ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, what you are communicating will be clear to us, that we may continue our advance to spiritual maturity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me this morning, 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. And we continue our study. Now, as we get into these next few verses, we have to take some time to understand some basic things we've taught several times in the past related to the spiritual life and related to the vocabulary of this chapter. I want you to understand that when you look at 1 John chapter 3 at first glance, it seems to say some things that are Confusing, perhaps unrealistic, idealistic, and people have a tendency to read through this and, and simply dismiss this as, well, I just don't understand it, so obviously couldn't mean what it seems to mean. We start in verse 4, we read, Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, And in him there is no sin. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Now when we look at those verses, it it, it looks as if John is saying that a Christian doesn't sin. But that would be a contradiction because in 1 John 1.8, John made the statement that the person who says he doesn't sin is lying and deceiving himself. So either John has forgotten what he wrote two chapters earlier, and he's contradicting himself, Or what he means when we get into 1 John chapter 3 is not what it appears to mean on the surface, and that is that Christians are sinless or don't commit sin anymore. If you sin, you weren't really a Christian. Now, unfortunately, there are people who take it that way, and and, uh, that's due to a failure to understand a number of concepts, which we have studied in detail here. But it's been a while since we've been over these, so we have to go back and do a little review, put some things together, and that's what Bible study is all about. See, people get the idea sometimes that, you know, it's funny why, why people are this way. Frequently, people get the idea, because it has to do with the Bible, that it ought to be simple like, a, like kindergarten information. But see, nothing else in life is that way. If you go to the doctor and, you, um, are just, and the doctor says that you have um, a melanoma, you immediately well, well, wait a minute, exactly what is that? And and before long, you're becoming acquainted with and familiar with all kinds of uh, vocabulary and terminology related to cancer. And you know more about cancer than you ever knew before. But it, it, suddenly it's, it's an important issue to you. It's a life and death issue. And so you're going to take the time to learn it. Unfortunately, um, when you get into Scripture, most people run across vocabulary information. They say, no, that, that, that's too confusing. I don't have time for that. And yet they will master the most uh, arcane vocabulary when it comes to uh, maybe automobile technology, when it has to do with computer technology, when it has to do with whatever it is they're interested in. See, if you're not interested in learning biblical technology, it's because you're not interested in God. That's And, and to say, well, you know, that's just too difficult for me is simply a way of masking or, or uh, rationalizing your own lack of interest in the word the word is basic there are many basic concepts in the word but just like any other subject in life you master it by mastering the basics and you learn those basic building blocks and then you put a together with b and you come up with a uh, conclusion c then you put d together with e and you come up with conclusion f and then you put conclusion c with conclusion f and you come up with Another level of conclusion called age. That's what's called theology and that's how we learn about God. Because God has given us the Word and He has given us a mind to think so that we use our mind to understand His Word, not independently. So when we get into the Word, we have to think. And part of the study of God's Word is designed to transform our thinking. So we have made, we make it a point here to get into the details of the original language especially, and to go verse by verse to make sure we really understand what the Scripture is saying. Now, there's two key words that we have run across in this section. We saw that in 1 John 2.28, John gave a command. He said, Now, little children, abide in him. That is the main command, this word abide, which occurs several times in this section. We find it again when we come down to verse 24. Now, he who keeps his commandment abides in him, and he in him. And by this we know that he abides in us. Several other times, verse 14, verse 15 in this chapter, and verse 9, we have this same word, abide. We find it in in, in verse 6. Along with this, there's an, another key word that is found here, and that is the word love. And we look at verse 2 of the chapter, and John says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. Excuse me. Verse um, verse 1, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. Love becomes a major theme throughout the, the main body of this epistle. Down through 419, we're going to get in, in chapter 4, we will get into a major exposition uh, of what love is. So love is related to abiding. Now, to put this together, we have to understand some background. And, And we've got that background because we spent two years or more going through the Gospel of John. And when we came towards the end of the Gospel of John, we came to that section starting in John 13, which is called the Upper Room Discourse. And that's just a technical term for Jesus' instruction to his disciples in the upper room the night before he went to the cross. And to understand what John is saying in this epistle, we can't divorce it from what Jesus taught in the upper room discourse, because the the upper room discourse is almost uh, the basics, and this is the advanced doctrine. So let's go back and pick up a couple of things that we find in John chapter 15. Keep your place here in 1 John 3, we'll be back. But we have to look at John, some of these issues in John 15 or we will be completely lost when we get into 1 John chapter 3. John chapter 15 is Jesus' discourse on the vine when Jesus uses the vine as an analogy for the spiritual life. And the key command here is in verse 4, where Jesus says, Abide in me and I in you. Now, when Jesus says, Abide in you, there he uses the verb abide. But when he says, And I in you, he leaves the verb out. That's called ellipsis. And when you're excited or you're emphasizing a point, frequently you'll leave out a verb, but it's understood to be there. Abide in me and I abide in you. So there is this dual abiding that's taking place. Now, remember, Jesus is talking to believers. He's talking to the disciples. He is not talking, therefore, about something that happens at the point of salvation. He's not talking about what we call positional truth, that is, related to our positional reality in Jesus Christ. He is talking about a relationship. The command here, the key command in John 15 is, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. The point that Jesus is making is that just as a branch on a plant, take a tomato vine, many of us are familiar, more familiar with that than we are with a grapevine. take a tomato vine, the fruit of the tomato that grows on the branch grows from that branch only when that branch is abiding in the main vine itself, only when there is this Intimate connection and relationship there. Now, I want you to notice something if you've ever grown anything, is that fruit takes a while to grow. There's a lot of growth before you get to the point of fruit. Fruit is evidence of maturity, not evidence of growth. When I mean, I've grown tomato plants a lot, and you go out in the garden and you plant the seeds, and about this time of year, and you, you or you keep them in the house until the weather warms up a little bit. See, I, I still haven't gotten used to the fact that that here in New England you don't put tomato plants in the ground till after Memorial Day. You know, you put a plant in the ground in Texas after Memorial Day, and it'll burn up the next week. You know, by now you're already getting your tomato plants or the, the fruit's already out on the vine down in Texas, but, but here we're just uh, still dreaming about summer. Except for what was it, week before last when we had 90 plus weather. Anyway, it takes a while before fruit is produced, but fruit comes because there is a relationship between the branch and the vine itself. So point number one in terms of review is abiding in Christ is the key command that Jesus makes here in John 15, verse 4. The second thing we need to note is Jesus says that abiding is in me. Now, that's what Jesus said. So if someone else says it, then the way we would express it is Jesus said to abide in him or we are to abide in Christ. Now, the reason we get into some trouble there is because Paul had that same phrase in his epistles. But how John uses the phrase is built on how Jesus used the phrase in me, not on how Paul used the phrase in Christ. And if we don't understand that, we're going to get in in a lot of trouble. So let's take a look at a familiar diagram. The point of salvation, we put our faith alone in Christ alone. See, salvation is simple. Spiritual life is simple. They're both based on grace. Scripture says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And at the instant we put our faith in Jesus Christ, a number of things take place that are eternal realities, spiritual realities that are ours because of our identification with Christ. Now, the eternal realities are different from temporal realities. Temporal realities have to do with our day-to-day or moment-by-moment experience in our spiritual life. When we trust Christ, we are placed in Christ by what the scripture calls the baptism by the Holy Spirit. Now, baptism, as we have studied, means identification. And Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, explains the fact that at the instant of salvation, something happens. And this is a legal concept. Remember, man's basic problem of sin is not necessarily experiential. It is judicial. Man violates the... Absolute law of God. So what has to happen in terms of the solution is first the judicial solution and then the experiential solution. The judicial solution is solved at salvation because when we put our faith and trust in Christ, Christ's perfect righteousness is then credited to us. So that when God looks at us, he sees not our own sinfulness, which is still there because you're still a sinner. We still have a sin nature. There's no sin that an unbeliever can commit that a believer can't commit. You're still a sinner, but now we are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. That's the imagery to help us understand this concept. God's Christ's perfect righteousness is credited to our account so that when God looks at us, he sees Christ's righteousness. That is our position in Christ. So we use this diagram to explain that because the terminology in the Greek is called a... um, uh, a, a date of sphere, a of location, we are in Christ. This is a spiritual reality. This is how Paul uses the term. As part of being in Christ, a number of different things happen to us at the instant of salvation. We're redeemed, we're regenerated, we're propitiated, we're adopted into the family of God, we become a royal priest, we are uh, indwelt by God the Holy Spirit. A number of other things happen at the instant of salvation. We're sealed by the Spirit, we can't lose our salvation. And that has to do with our position. Then in terms of our experience, there may be some things that are a little bit different. Now, in terms of experience, Jesus talks about the fact that as a believer, remember, he's talking to people here in John 15 who are already believers. They are the disciples. They are the 11 disciples. He's gotten rid of Judas, who never was a believer. And he tells his disciples that if you want to be fruitful, if you want to advance to maturity, You have to abide in me. So abiding in him is not a term related to salvation, but is related to that ongoing growth process in the Christian life. So we have the terminology abiding in him, and that relates to our ongoing spiritual life. So Paul's terminology, point number three in terms of review here, Paul's terminology in Christ has to do with our position in Christ at the instant of salvation, our identification with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, so that that is all applied to us in terms of our salvation. But point number four, Jesus' term, in me, is not a positional term or a judicial term. It is a relational term. Now, this is so important to understand, the concept of forensics or the concept of a judicial identification is complicated, it's it's abstract. But see, the basic problem, if we understand the basic problem is a violation of God's law, then the basic solution has to begin with a solution that deals with that judicial penalty. Now, when Jesus used the term, in me, it's a relational concept. Now, how do we know that? Well, we look at the various passages in which Jesus uses the terminology, in me, to describe uh, his relationship with God. For example, in John 10.38, Jesus said, If I do them, that if I do certain works, though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Now, when he says the Father is in me, he's talking about this close, intimate relationship that he has with God the Father. Now, remember, Jesus Christ is in hypostatic union. That term means that Jesus Christ is on the one hand undiminished deity, deity united with true humanity. As we studied last week under the doctrine of under the doctrine of the impeccability of Christ, Jesus Christ was born without sin because of the virgin birth. Because there was not a human male father involved, there was. No uh, imputation of Adam's original sin. See, the problem with every single person is when we're born, we have three strikes against us. First of all, because we are a descendant from Adam, we have imputed to us Adam's original sin. Secondly, we inherit through the Father a sin nature. We have a propensity and a capacity for sin. And third, then, eventually we commit personal sins. We are sinners because... We are born with a sin nature. We are not sinners because we commit personal sins. Therefore, from the instant of birth, we are all under condemnation. Now, Jesus Christ, because he was born of a virgin, did not have the imputation of Adam's original sin. Because a human male father was not involved, he did not, was not born with a sin nature. And he lived his life Sinlessly, and he never committed personal sin. That qualified him to go to the cross to die as our substitute on the cross. So, because Jesus never had a problem with sin, the idea of, ju- of a judicial or positional relationship with God is nullified. It's not necessary. Because Jesus said, I am one with the Father, because of the fact that he was undiminished deity as the eternal second person of the Trinity, he has always had an intimate union with God the Father throughout all eternity. Because of that, we know that when Jesus uses the term in me, it is talking about this intimate relationship that he has with God the Father. He uses the same phrase again in the same context of, of the upper room discourse in John fourteen ten and 11. There he says, Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me. Otherwise, believe on account of the works themselves. See, he's not talking about a judicial relationship with the Father but an intimate personal involvement with the Father, a relationship, fellowship. Again in John 17, 20, 21, That they may all be one. Jesus is praying in John seventeen for the church. He is this is what's called the high priestly prayer. This is the true Lord's prayer, not, not the prayer that most people associate with the Lord's Prayer. This is uh that was a model prayer. This is the true prayer that he prays for the church. He prays that they may all be one. Now that is potential, it is not actual. So he's praying for the church, he's praying for the disciples. There is the potential of unity, but it's not actual yet. Even as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee. See, he is talking about intimate fellowship here, he's not talking about positional union. Because positionally, once we believe in Christ, every person who believes in Jesus Christ is in union with Christ, and there is a unity in the body of Christ positionally. We're all one in Christ. So why would he be praying that we could all be one if we are already actually one, positionally? He can't be praying positionally because that's true. So he has to be praying for a relational unity, as even as modeled on the unity of Father and Son. So the point I'm making here is that when Jesus uses the term, in me, he's not using it as Paul used the phrase, in Christ. So when John comes along in the gospel, I mean in the epistle, and he's talking about abiding. He's talking about love. It is in the same terminology Jesus talked about abiding in love in the upper room discourse. Remember, the command here in John 15 is Jesus says, abide in me. But this whole section from John 13, 38 on is an explanation of how we achieve the main command in John chapter 13, verses 30, uh, 5 and, uh, 34 and 35. There Jesus said a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. As I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have loved one another. So the main command governing the entire upper room discourse is... Love one another as Christ has loved us. Now, in order to be able to fulfill that command, something has to happen experientially in the life of the believer, and that is that he has to abide in Christ. That's John chapter 15. Remember, this is all one long teaching session to the to the disciples. Starting It started on John 13. This is the night before Jesus went to the cross, and this is, as it were, his parting instruction to the disciples before he goes to the cross. So in summary we realize that abiding in Christ is the key command. Abiding is in me, that is, it is in terms of relationship with Jesus, not positional truth. That means it has to do with our ongoing fellowship with Christ, not our initial union with him in terms of salvation. Now we come to the fifth point here. The fifth point is that in Jesus' statement in John fifteen four. Abiding in Christ is the sole and necessary condition to produce fruit. It's the sole and necessary condition. When Jesus talks, he says in John 15, verse 4, he says, Abide in me. And I and you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you. In other words, you can't bear fruit in the Christian life and fruit is Christian maturity. It's not giving. It's not evangelism. It's not any of the things associated with with Christian service, see, that's where most most churches get things wrong is they're trying to get you to get get involved in, in giving to the local church. They want your money. They're trying to get you involved in teaching Sunday school and all kinds of programs and everything else, and, and, and we don't believe in that here. Uh, giving, Christian service, witnessing, whatever it might be, that is the result of your spiritual growth. We don't believe in artificially pushing people into different areas of Christian growth, I mean Christian service, because it has to be a result of spiritual growth. There has to be spiritual growth first, spiritual service second, because spiritual service without spiritual growth is just superficiality. And if there's no understanding of the Word of God, there's no understanding of the dynamics of the spiritual life, then giving money, getting involved in evangelism, getting involved in teaching in the local church, any area of Christian service, whatever it might be, is meaningless. It has no spiritual value. So rather than waste your time and our time, our whole philosophy here is that you need to spend time in spiritual growth, getting to Bible class, learning the Word, and when you when the Word becomes a priority in your life and you begin to grow, then these other things will be a consequence of that spiritual growth spiritual service is not to be confused with or aligned with or the result of uh, uh spiritual growth spiritual service and spiritual growth are two different things now in john 15:4 jesus makes it clear that you can't produce fruit that comes from a mature plant an immature plant produces growth not fruit unless you abide John fifteen five he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. So, again, it's that mutual abiding. We abide in him and he abides in us. It is a mutual relationship, an intimacy that characterizes the concept of abide. The Greek word meno means to stay, to remain in one place. It has this idea of an ongoing relationship and fellowship with Jesus Christ, and that produces fruit. Now, the point I want to make in this, without belaboring it too much, is that Jesus is saying that you can't bear fruit unless you abide in me. Abiding in me is the only thing. It's the important thing. Anything else, does nothing else matters. The sole and only and necessary condition for producing fruit is to abide in me. Now, let's turn over to Galatians chapter 5. If you're trying to write this down in terms of points, point five was abiding is the sole necessary condition for fruit production, and that's in John 15, four and five. Point number six. In Galatians chapter five, the sole and necessary condition for producing fruit is to walk by the Holy Spirit. In Galatians chapter five, the sole and necessary condition for producing fruit is to walk by the Holy Spirit. So let's try to Put this up on the overhead and chart it this way. Fruit production. Fruit production has to do with character, spiritual growth, the development of virtue in the Christian life. Now there's a key word that we're going to come back to in 1 John chapter 3. It's the development of Christian virtues, the character of Jesus Christ. This is seen, if you look uh, down at verses, um, Verses 22 and 23, but the fruit of the Spirit, that is the production of the God the Holy Spirit, is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. These, this is character quality. Notice it didn't say the fruit of the Spirit is giving 10%. It didn't say the fruit of the Spirit is evangelism. It doesn't say the fruit of the Spirit is teaching Sunday school. These are results of your priesthood. As a believer, you should be involved in these to one degree or level, and that degree will be affected by your spiritual growth and maturity. But don't confuse the two. So the fruit production has to do with character qualities, the production of virtue. Now, what is the condition for the fruit of the Spirit? We have to go back to Galatians 5, verse 18. Or verse 17, excuse me, verse 16, using a new Bible. Uh, verse 16, Paul says, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. So the command is to walk, and we have studied this many times, and this is a, a, an instrumental dative here, and should be translated, walk by means of the Holy Spirit. And it emphasizes the fact that it is the Holy Spirit who is the means for living the spiritual life. The Christian life is not difficult. It's impossible apart from divine enablement. The Christian life is a supernatural way of life and demands a supernatural means of production. You can't live it on your own. You can't say, okay, I'm going to go out today and I'm going to solve all these problems in my life and I'm going to pull myself up by my moral bootstraps and somehow I'm going to solve the problems in my life. You can't do it. You can't fulfill the commands and mandates of Scripture apart from divine enablement and the power of God the Holy Spirit. So Galatians 5.16 makes the point that the sole and necessary condition for fruit production is walking by God the Holy Spirit. So if in this passage walking by the Spirit produces fruit... And in John chapter 15, abiding in Christ produces fruit. Then walking by means of the Holy Spirit and abiding in Christ must be somewhat equivalent terms, talking about basically the same thing but from a different vantage point. To abide in Christ means that at the same time we are walking by means of God the Holy Spirit. To walk by means of God the Holy Spirit means that we are also at the same time abiding in Christ. So we put that together in terms of our diagram. We see that when we are abiding in him, we are also walking by means of God the Holy Spirit. But I want you to pay attention to what happens in the second half of this verse. If we don't understand the second half of this verse, then we won't understand what John's getting at when we get into John 3. We have to put these things together. One of the basic principles of Scripture is that God didn't say everything there was to say about a subject in one place. God did not say everything there is to say about a subject in one place. It, it, it's like pieces of a puzzle. There, there, some information is given here, some information is given there. That's called the doctrine of progressive revelation. Progressively over time, God gives more and more information. Now when we come to the scriptures, we look at the scriptures. A basic principle of Bible study is to compare scripture with scripture and to put these things together, and that's the development of our understanding of God's Word. So when we walk by the Spirit, Paul says in Galatians 5.16, he says, walk by means of the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Now, that this is a fascinating construction in the Greek. Now, remember, the New Testament was written in Greek. We know from our study of God's Word that, that Jesus said that, Not one jot or tittle will pass away from the law until he fulfills everything. Now, what that means is this. The word that's translated jot is really the word yod, Y-O-D-H. It's a soft D, almost like a soft T-H. And it's the Greek letter, I mean the Hebrew letter, Y, that looks like an apostrophe in English. It's about a third the size of a normal Hebrew letter. It's a very small letter. And then a tittle is even smaller. In Hebrew, you have a number of uh, letters that are very similar to one another. For example, the letter R in Hebrew looks something like this. It's the letter Resh. The letter D in Hebrew looks like this. Very similar. First-year Hebrew students go blind sometimes looking at the difference. The difference between a Resh and a Dalet is this little tick that goes off the edge here, like a race. It's the difference in English between, let's say, here you have an F, here you have a P. All you do is close off that F and you go from an F to a P. That's a tittle. Makes a lot of difference. A lot of difference between the word fat and the word pat. Even more between fat and rat. But see, if you lose that title, it would change the whole meaning of a sentence. So Jesus is saying that the God's inspiration of Scripture extends down to the minutest details of the Scripture. Now that affects words. For example, in many words, the only thing that makes a difference between a past tense or and a present tense in a, in a verb is just one letter. The difference, you know the same thing as in English, the difference between a singular and a plural is just one letter. But that can make all the difference in understanding a passage. So so every detail of the scripture, every single word is breathed out by God and is exactly the way God intends it to be. That's the doctrine of inspiration. Well, here we have a fascinating construction in the Greek. We have a double negative may. Now, in English, it's incorrect grammar to use a double negative. Two negatives in English makes positive. But in Greek, you can pile up your negatives in order to emphasize the negation. And when you use two negatives like this, plus in your verb, remember verbs have um, tense, voice, and mood, and, and it's more precise in the Greek than it is in English, But one mood of the verb, which is like a mode, is the subjunctive mood. And the subjunctive mood is designed to emphasize probability or potentiality. But one uses of the subjunctive is what's called an emphatic negation. And when you take a double negative plus a a verb in the subjunctive mood, that's the strongest possible way to, to, to negate something. In other words, when you have this construction the 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 speaker is saying that something is impossible. It just can't happen. Now what we have here is a subjunctive mood of the verb teliao. T E L T E L E I O O which means to bring something uh to completion. It has to do with the concept of bringing something to maturity. And so what Paul is saying here is, walk by means of the Spirit, and it will be impossible for you to bring to completion the lust of the flesh. Now, the term flesh, as we have seen many times, is the word sarx, which has to do, in a a metaphorical use, it describes the sin nature Every person has a sin nature. The instant you're saved, your sin nature is just as powerful, just as corrupt as it was before you were saved. It doesn't get any better. There aren't any sins you can't commit after salvation that you could commit before you were saved. You can still do everything you can. In fact, you can probably be worse. And I know some people that that go into spiritual rebellion, and they're a whole lot worse after they were saved than they were before they were saved. What Paul is saying here is when you're walking by the Spirit, it's impossible to bring to completion the lust of the sin nature. So how do we sin? I mean, what Paul seems to be saying is once you're filled with the Spirit, you can't sin. Well, see, the issue is volition. See, I can decide to stop walking by the Spirit either consciously or unconsciously, whether it's a clear, specific decision or just something that's so quick and instantaneous I don't pay any attention to it, but it's nevertheless real. I can choose to stop being dependent upon God the Holy Spirit. That's what walk by the Spirit means. So what happens is, in some instant of time, some nanosecond, I decide I'm not going to listen to the Holy Spirit. I'm not going to be dependent upon God the Holy Spirit in my day-to-day And This isn't something mystical. This isn't looking inside yourself, analyzing your belly button, looking for some kind of liver quiver as to what God wants you to do. It's really clear. We've gone through this. If you want a study of it, go back and get the tapes. Walking by the Spirit here means to walk according to a set pattern and follow a clear path or footsteps. And those footsteps are the Word of God. In other words, it's not liver quiver. It's learning exactly what the Word of God says. The Word of God sets out a track of thinking and behavior before the believer. And we we walk by the Spirit by walking down that track in dependence upon Him. But what happens is we decide we want to go out of bounds. We want to go out outside of that track. And so we're going to sin. And we make that choice to stop walking by the Holy Spirit. And the instant we do then we're living according to the sin nature, and then we can bring to completion the lust of the flesh. As soon as you decide to stop walking by the Spirit, that puts you into self-reliance, and at that point on, you can bring to completion the lust of the sin nature. We've studied the sin nature, and we've seen that the lust pattern is the prime motivator inside the sin nature. Now, once we stop walking by the Spirit and we're out of fellowship, and we're walking by means of the said nature, do we lose our salvation? No. We're still safe. See, we're still in Christ. We're over here in the... Uh... In this other side over here, in the left circle, we're still in Christ. We're still indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We're still positionally saved. We're still identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. We're still adopted into the royal family of God. God doesn't kick us out. But now we're disobedient children, and we're out of fellowship, and we're living in carnality. And So the only way to get back into fellowship is to admit or acknowledge our sin to God. Use 1 John 1, nine. Now we're filled with the Spirit. We're walking by means of the Holy Spirit. We're abiding in Christ again. But while we're in that circle, remember, while we're in that circle and we're abiding in Him, what Paul is saying in Galatians 5.16 is we can't fulfill the lust of the flesh. While you're walking by the Spirit, you can't sin. See, that's what Paul is saying right there. While you're walking by the Spirit, you can't sin. You have to make a decision to stop walking. Then you can sin. Well, while you're walking, while you're in fellowship, while you're abiding in Christ, you can't sin. That's what John is saying. Now, look at what, I mean, that's what Paul is saying. Now, look at, uh, we've been looking at Galatians 5.16, and I want to connect that for you. Play connect the dots. I want to connect that for you to, to the key subject matter here, which is back in verse 13. Notice how we've backed up to get the context. Verse 13, Paul says, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty, only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh. Don't use your freedom in Christ as a license to sin. See, you couldn't say that unless you could. See, I think every Christian's done that at some point. In fact, somebody once said, if you're not, if people aren't exploiting grace and misusing grace, you're not teaching grace. See, grace means that God forgives you of anything and everything. Some people say, well, that's great. i just go ahead and do it and confess my sin, and I'll be forgiven. Yeah, you will, but you probably won't be back in fellowship for long. But in verse 13, Paul says, Don't use your liberty as an opportunity for the sin nature, but through love serve one another. Wow, that's great. Love serve one another. How do I do that, Paul? Well, that's what Paul says in verse 14. He gives an Old Testament illustration that the command from even in the Old Testament is to love your neighbor as yourself. And then he gives an illustration that if you're divisive, you're not gonna, you're obviously not loving one another. Well, how do I do this? You walk by means of the Spirit. Okay, so I walk by means of the Spirit. What happens? The Spirit produces love. See, notice when I read Galatians 5.22 that the first fruit he mentions in the fruit of the Spirit is love. That's because that's what he's talking about. How to fulfill that command to love one another. What was Jesus' main command in John 13? 35 and 36. It was to love one another. Jesus said to love one another, you have to abide in me. John Paul in Galatians 5 is saying you have to love one another. To do that, you have to walk by means of the spirit and the spirit will produce that fruit eventually. As a mature believer, he will produce that fruit of love. And now that we have that, maybe we can understand with that background, 1 John chapter 3. Cuz remember John 1st John Chapter 3 is talking about abiding, and it's talking about love. And so he's, John is going to be saying the same thing in just slightly different terminology when we get into 1 John chapter 3. John has already said, just pick up a little review, he says, behold, in other words, pay attention, it's not behold, it's "It's edete in the Greek, it means to concentrate on this, pay attention, Is put this before the eyes of your thinking, and focus on this for a little bit, how marvelous, how fantastic the love of God is, God has made us, he's adopted us into his royal family, he's regenerated us, he's given us all these fantastic spiritual assets. Consider, think about, concentrate on how great the love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Therefore, the world doesn't know us. The world does not understand this. That is, unbelievers don't appreciate this. They can't comprehend it because they did not know him. Verse 2, Beloved, now we are children of God. As believers, we're children of God. We're in the royal family of God. We've been adopted into his family, and we can never lose that. It has not been revealed what we shall be. We don't know what we're going to be like in a resurrection body. We have hints, but we don't know it completely. But we know, we know this for sure, that when he is revealed, that is when Jesus comes back at the rapture, we will be like him. We will be transformed inside and out. We'll get resurrection bodies, and we will be purged of that sin nature, and we will be face-to-face with the Lord, and we will be like him. What's he like? We shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him, that is this confident expectation, will be confident when he appears at the rapture, purifies himself. In other words, the believer who understands that one day you're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, not to determine if you'll get into heaven, but for evaluation of your life here on earth as a believer. When you get before the Lord... Are you going to have confidence or shame? That was the problem in 1 John 2.28. He's trying to teach us how to avoid shame at the judgment seat of Christ. He says, everyone who has this hope, who realizes this, has this confidence in him, is going to purify himself. And that has to do, as we studied, with both using 1 John 1.9, that is confession of sin, and learning the word because it's the word of God that transforms us and matures us. And those are the two key elements in spiritual growth, the filling of the Spirit and the Word of God. Now we come to verse four. Verse four says, Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. Now we have a couple of problems here because it seems like whenever you come across certain words in the New Testament, people want to sort of a knee-jerk reaction to translate them a certain way. The word here for lawlessness is the Greek word anomia, A-N-O-M-I-A. Now, the word for law is namas. In Greek, you have a prefix called the alpha privative, which is like um, U-N in English. It's a negation. So when you have a word like anomia, the alpha privative would have the idea of being without nomia law. Well, that means lawlessness, right? Wrong. See, the problem is that, first of all, most Christians have the erroneous idea that the precedent for the spiritual life is the Mosaic Law. And the Mosaic Law is not the precedent for the spiritual life. The Mosaic Law represents the constitution and spiritual life of Israel in the Old Testament. But the precedent for the spiritual life in the church age is Jesus Christ and his walk by means of God the Holy Spirit. And so the knee-jerk reaction from most legalists is whenever you see a word like this, you translate it lawlessness. And you have that in most of the English translations. The other problem is that that was a major meaning of the word, was one major meaning of the word in Greek. But remember... The precedent, the understanding for most vocabulary in the New Testament is not classical Greek. It's not 5th century B.C. Greek. It's not even Koine usage. It is Old Testament Hebrew usage because John and Paul and Peter and all of these guys were Jews. and Hebrew was their first language, and these guys had saturated their souls with the Septuagint. And the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament scriptures. And so having saturated their souls with the Greek Septuagint, they're using this terminology as it was used in the Septuagint and the Old Testament, not like how it was used in Athens in 5th century B.C. And so to get an understanding of what Onomia means, we have to look at how it was used in the Greek Old Testament, what Hebrew words are translated. In the Hebrew, it translates the word avon. A, it's really pronounced like a V, -V A-V-O-N, it's not avon. And it means, the basic root meaning is something that is distorted or twisted. And it came to be used of uh, of sin because it distorts or twists the soul of a man and because it is a twisting and a distortion of the absolute standard of God. And it was a common word used in many passages. God will condemn sin and, and especially in the Psalms, you'll have the word sin in one uh, statement and then in, a, in synonymous parallelism you will have the word Um, avon, which is usually translated iniquity. Now that we have that in mind, let's look at what John says. John says that, that whoever commits sin also commits iniquity. And I think that the best way to translate this is something along this line. Everyone, every sinner... Another thing that we have to look at here is even though this is translated, it said, whoever practices sin in some versions, whoever commits sin, that's because we have a present participle here. Now, I'm just loving this this morning. I love getting into grammar. Now, in English, you have a part, you have a participle. That's any word that ends with an ing. Going, eating, running, those are participles. Now, a participle is a, called a verbal adjective. Now, what's interesting is in the parts of speech and like I looked in English grammar this morning, you have eight parts of speech, and adjectives usually listed as a part of speech in English. But classically, it wasn't. You go back and you study Latin and Greek, and uh, classically, an adjective was not one of the seven parts of speech. It was considered a noun, a noun that said something about another noun. So you see what happens is it, with a participle in Greek, it can either function verbally like an adverb, or it can function adjectivally like a noun. The way you tell the difference is whether or not it has a definite article with it. And in this case, it has a definite article, so that means it's used like a noun. And John does this a lot, and it's one of the problems in translating this epistle, is that translators tend to want to translate it with more of a verbal idea, and he's using it as a name, the sinner. He's not saying the one who practices sin. He's saying the sinner. And he's saying here that the sinner... It's almost redundant. The sinner violates the absolute standard of God. That's why he's using the term anomia. And so it should be translated, every sinner does or commits transgressions of divine absolutes. And then he says, and sin is a transgression of a divine standard. Just a basic definition of sin. This is not a difficult passage. Just every every sinner violates the opposite standard of God. He twists it. It's that idea. He twists it, he distorts the absolute standard of God, and that's what sin is. It is a distortion, it's a twisting of the absolute standard of God. And then he goes on to, to say in verse 5, he builds on this, and he says, And you know that he was manifested, that he here is Jesus. Jesus was manifested, that is, he, he, he was revealed, to take away our sins. He is revealed to take away our sins. Now, the interesting thing here is this is the verb Iroh, which is the same verb The same word, the same verbiage John the Baptist used when he looked at Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, our typical knee-jerk reaction is to look at this and say, Okay, this is what happened at salvation. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. But, see, if we take it that way, you end up having a real problem with this passage because you're going to end up saying that then Christians can't sin. So, John isn't saying that because it didn't stop at the cross. It's ongoing. Now, let's look at a familiar chart for most of you. The Bible uses the word saved in three senses. This is old hat for many of you. There is that salvation that took place at the cross. See, the word saved, sozo in the Greek, simply means to be delivered. But you always have to look at the context and determine what you're being delivered from in the context. Because it isn't always the same. See, in some contexts, salvation deals with our deliverance from the penalty of sin. That's what we call phase one, justification. The instant you put your faith alone in Christ alone, at that instant, you were delivered from the penalty of sin. Your eternal destination is heaven and not hell, and nothing can change that. But the spiritual life has to do with working out that salvation, as Paul put it in Philippians chapter 2, working out that salvation, learning how to be free from the power of sin in, in the Christian life. See, we have to realize we still have a sin nature, and as Paul says in Romans chapter 6, we can live under the power of that sin nature, or we can recognize that Jesus broke the chains, broke the tyranny of the sin nature, so that under the power of God, the Holy Spirit, we can... Uh, live a life that is not sinful. In other words, we can live a life that's not characterized by sin. What did I just say in Galatians chapter 5? That's what Paul's saying. Walk by the Spirit and you won't sin. When you're walking by the Spirit, you can't sin. What happens is we choose not to walk by the Spirit and we do sin. But learning the mechanics of the spiritual life is what this is all about. Learning how to grow so that we can be freed from the power of sin and we do not self-destruct by living a life based on the sin nature. And so Jesus came to take away our sins. It began at the cross where we are freed from the penalty of sin, but it is ongoing in sanctification where we realize the benefits of that work on the cross in terms of being freed from the day-to-day power. Of sin. Every time we come to understand more and more what it means to be identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, we realize more and more what it means to be freed from sin. That's the whole discussion that Paul has in Romans chapter 6, which we have uh, studied in detail and is available on tape. So we're freed from the power of sin, and it's not until we die or the rapture occurs and we're absent from the body and face to face with the Lord that we have a glorified body that we are eventually freed from the presence of sin. So John says in 1 John 3, verse 5, he says, You know that he was manifested, that is, Jesus Christ was revealed at the first advent to take away sins. First of all, in terms of its payment at the cross, he paid the penalty for our sins. And secondly, because he demonstrated in his life that he could, live a sinless life in dependence upon God the Holy Spirit. He didn't live it in his own power, on the power of his deity. As a man, he lived a spiritual life in dependence upon God the Holy Spirit to demonstrate the power and the reality of God the Holy Spirit for the believer in the church age. So John is saying that in him, then, there is no sin. That is, in Christ, abiding in him, there is no sin. And, and almost every time, both here and in John 15, uh, that John has the phrase, in him, it's understood to have the concept of abiding. Just as in verse 6, he says, in him there is no sin. Whoever abides in him does not sin. He makes it clear in the first clause of verse 6 that in him is not positional, it's experiential. If you're abiding in him, you won't sin. Now, everybody has a problem with that, and they go, whoa, wait a minute, as a Christian, I can't sin? Remember, this is, the, this is not any different from what Paul said in Galatians chapter 5. When you're walking by the Spirit, you won't sin. You can't sin. You have to make a decision. This is why failure in the spiritual life is a result of your own volition. You've decided to reject the provision of God in terms of the Holy Spirit, reject the provision of God in terms of his word, and reject all the spiritual assets that God has given you. And so you just want to live your life on your own terms, according to your own priorities and your own value system. And the end result is always going to be self-induced misery and failure in life. So John says, the believer that Jesus Christ was manifested to take away sins in him, that is, in abiding in him, when you're in him, there is no sin. Whoever abides in him does not sin. And then in the second half of verse 6, he says, Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Ah, this is just another one of those really fun passages where we have to get into a little grammar. What a great passage for grammar. Now, whoever sins, once again, is is a present participle in the Greek used as a substantive, that is, all who sin, all who sin are not abiding in him. Whoever abides in him, First uh, John 3, 6, uh, he who practices righteousness, once again, he who practices righteousness, it, excuse me, I've skipped a verse, uh, whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Now, what we have here, something really fascinating, the concept neither seen him nor known him is translated In the English with just a simple past tense, but in the Greek it's a perfect tense. Now a perfect tense in Greek is different from an English perfect. A perfect tense in the Greek means it's talking about an action that's over with in the past and you're focusing on the present results of that. So what the best way to portray it is like this. Here you have an X, this indicates the past action, and this line represents the ongoing results. And we're focusing on the ongoing results here. And what John's saying is that whoever sins, whoever, I mean the sinner, the person who's, who is sinning, who is carnal, who is out of fellowship, has neither seen him nor known him. Now, at first glance, a lot of people are going to say, well, that means they're not saved. No, it doesn't mean they have never seen him or known him. See, this is in some sense, this is correctly translated into English, but most people who read this don't know English grammar. A, an English present perfect tense does not imply never. It simply implies a present reality of blindness and ignorance. Very similar to what we have in the Greek perfect. The Greek perfect is saying at this present time, this person is blind and ignorant spiritually as a result of a past decision. It is not saying, and there's nothing in the grammar to suggest that what John is saying is no one who sins has never seen him or known him. It is saying that as a result of sin, he's spiritually blind and spiritually ignorant. Now put this together with what John says. John, I mean, what Paul says in Galatians five. You're over here and you're walking by the Spirit. You make a decision to stop walking by the Spirit, and now you're out of fellowship. And now you can bring to completion the work of the lust of the sin nature. When you sin, when once you've made this decision and you're operating on the sin nature. That is now a present reality that's comparable to what's going on right here at this present tense. At this point, you're out of fellowship, and that means that you're not walking by the Holy Spirit. So you're spiritually blind and you're spiritually ignorant out in spiritual darkness at that instant in time. I mean, that's exactly what we're portraying in this diagram. John is saying that the person who abides in Christ, who stays inside the right circle, walking by the Spirit, filled by the Spirit, abiding in Christ, can't sin. But once you choose to leave that position of dependency, that activates the sin nature. You're out of fellowship. You're in darkness. John called it walking in darkness. When you're walking in darkness, you're spiritually blind and you're spiritually ignorant. Now, let's put this together with one other thing. And that is the fact that we have, I have taught the fact that there are ten basic spiritual skills. You take everything that the Bible teaches and boil it down into ten basic spiritual skills for advancing in the spiritual life. And they begin with, we're going to draw them in a circle. They start off with confession. That gets us back in fellowship. And then we have the filling of the Holy Spirit. Then we have the faith rest drill where we're claiming the promises of God and mixing them with faith. And then we have grace orientation and we have doctrinal orientation. We have a personal sense of our eternal destiny. We have personal love for God the Father, impersonal love for all mankind, and perfect happiness. Now I've drawn them this way because that defines a circle. Now think of that as a wall. The wall is made up of these ten bricks that comprise our stress busters that we've talked about. Those of you who are visitors, um, you're just gonna ha- if you're interested, you can get the tapes where I developed this. Uh we have these ten spiritual skills. When we're in fellowship abiding in Christ, and we're faced with all kinds of temptations, testings, or problems, how do we handle those problems? We handle them God's way through God's methodology in one of the stress busters. If you don't handle them God's way, then you're handling your way, and that ejects you from that sphere of protection, that soul fortress we've talked about, and you're out here walking in darkness, walking by means of the sin nature. So you have to confess your sins. That's why you have confession here. And then you get back in fellowship, abiding in Christ, where you can utilize these spiritual skills to stay in fellowship. You have to utilize those spiritual skills to face the issues of life to stay in fellowship. If you don't use those spiritual skills, then you are relying upon your own resources, and boom, you're back out of fellowship, and you're walking in spiritual darkness. And this is exactly what John is talking about. In fact, John is going to use one word to describe this entire dynamic. And that's a word that comes from the maturity aspect, and that is, I left out occupation with Christ, that is... Love. He's going to use that word to characterize the mature spiritual life because it deals with these these three spiritual skills personal, that all have to do with love, personal love for God the Father, impersonal love for all mankind, and occupation with Christ. That's where we're going. We're going to go over this again and again and again, but I hope this begins to make sense. I mean the dynamics that scripture give us for how to live the spiritual life are fantastic. Well, God has supplied us just goes far beyond anything we can ask or imagine. But it doesn't come simply. It doesn't happen just because you make a one-shot decision for Jesus. It comes because day in and day out you make a decision that you're going to make the Word of God the highest priority in your life, and you're going to let your thinking become saturated with the Word of God. And it doesn't happen in a day or in a week, but it takes months and months of consistency with that decision with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to once again come face-to-face with the reality of all that you have provided for us in the spiritual life. Father, we pray for uh, those who are here this morning, perhaps, who are unsure of their eternal destiny and uncertain of their eternal life. This is your opportunity to make that sure and certain. Jesus Christ paid the penalty for your sins on the cross. He paid the penalty for every single sin in human history, past, present, and future, so that sin is not the issue. It's not a matter of what you've done or what you haven't done. It's not a matter of church membership. It's not a matter of walking the aisle. It's not a matter of any ritual. It is simply a matter of accepting a free gift. Jesus Christ paid the penalty, and he offers that penalty to each and every person. Scripture says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. It's irreversible. Once you accept that free gift, you have eternal salvation. Father, we pray that you would challenge the rest of us with the things that we have learned today because they push us to make a decision about the second most important question in our life, and that is our spiritual life. The first most important question is, what do we do with Jesus Christ? The second is, what do we do with the Word of God? Is it going to be a priority or not? Father, challenge us with these things, we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.